Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I've been gone a couple weeks. I took two weeks and did a tour of Florida. We flew into Orlando, spent a couple nights in Orlando, went up to see the manatees, then went over to Cape Canaveral, and by the time we got there, it was too late to go visit the Space Museum. So then we headed up to St. Augustine and hung out there for a couple days, and then we went down to Sarasota, Florida, where I stayed at my nephew's house for a few days, and then we went down to Everglades City for a couple nights, did an airboat tour, and also rented a canoe and went canoeing down a river, saw lots of alligators, a snake. We only saw one snake, and that was on the on the road, walking across the road. We, we headed down to Key West for two nights, and then back up and, and then back to Utah. About this time of every year, I like to get out of the cold weather in Utah and get into the sun. And normally I would have gone to, to Thailand or Vietnam or Southeast Asia somewhere. Never been to the Philippines. That's probably at the top of my list to visit in the future when we can travel again. But that's what I've been up to. And I have an apology to make. The last episode I, I put out was episode number 241. And that was an episode with Lucas talking about um, commerce on a sailing boat in the Mediterranean. I have three more episodes with Lucas already in the can, ready to be released. But I looked in my feed today, and I see I had already scheduled, prior to the episode with Lucas coming out, episode number 240. So I'm going to, I'm, this is going to be out of, uh, out of numerical order for you, because last time I released episode 241, uh, the episode with Lucas, but I've got to go backwards to release this one, that which should have been released before episode 241, and this is episode number 240 with Nicholas Van Antwerp talking about his Atlantic crossing. Before we get to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina, store it on your boat. The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and 8 layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components... The Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a five-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. All right, let's get on to the interview with Nicholas Van Antwerp. 
I'm on Skype with Nicholas Van Antwerp. Nicholas wrote me an email, and he gave me a lot of information about a story he had to tell, and I thought, wow, you prepared the way. I've got actually on the website a uh, an outline that I would like to receive from people that want to be on the podcast, and you actually followed directions, Nick, so thanks a lot. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. So Nick lives in Chicago, and I was actually going to be presenting at the Columbia Yacht Club uh, presentation last spring, but then COVID got in the way, and... I never made that presentation. We talked about doing a Zoom call, but I basically dropped the ball on that. I just didn't have, um, I don't have a webcam, so and I didn't want to try to do a Zoom call without a webcam, so I sort of dropped the ball on that. But Nicholas, you you wrote me that you did uh, a transatlantic on a boat, and I gather you were crew on the boat. But before we get to that whole story, let's just learn a little bit about you and uh, where you learned to sail and what your experience is, because you you actually have quite a bit of sailing experience. So let's talk about that. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm glad following the directions got us to have this conversation. Um, yeah, so I started sailing. Uh, my dad had me on Hobie Cats when I was probably about four or five, um, just doing little um, little stuff off the beach in um, Saginaw Bay in Michigan. And from there, I started taking classes at the local community sailing center um, in my hometown, just north of Chicago. And I stayed in that program. I'm, I'm kind of still involved in it. Um, these past couple of years, I've been in and out of it um, in coaching capacity. Um, so I grew up racing there. I did Optimist. Then I did some 420 stuff, um, got away from it, and I came back to it. Um, as a coach, and I've done some opti coaching for them, as well as some adult pro, uh, programming and um, just some administrative stuff for them. Um, and then I also got involved in keelboats in Chicago. Um, that happened when I graduated college. I was back in Chicago, and I was looking for um, to get back into sailing. And a buddy of mine um, with crew on a 44-foot uh, boat, a Grand Soleil 44 in Chicago, so I started doing some of the bigger races in the Midwest, like uh, the Chicago Mac race on that boat. Um, that program then turned into a FAR 40. I raced on that for a little bit. Um, that owner also had a J70, so I got to go down and do some winter series stuff um, down in Key West, Miami, uh, St. Pete, Tampa, and that was on the J70. I've been on a FAR 280, um, so kind of small sport boats all around. Um, and then I've also gotten into, again, you said you were going to come to my club at Columbia Yacht Club. Um, I got involved with Columbia Yacht Club. I was working in the city and then going back to the suburbs and I wanted to sail pretty much every day. So I started coaching keelboat lessons there. They had a fleet of J-22s, um, which they have since turned into Colgate 26s. Um, and that program is just, just uh, taken off. We have uh, six boats now. They do a frostbite series. They do learn to race series. And it's been really fun working with the adults um, in that program and hearing some of the stories of people who've been involved in that, that sailing school program who've gone on. Um, and I'll catch up with them at the club maybe every other year. You see some of these people and they're doing uh, great deliveries all around uh, some Caribbean sailing, some West Coast sailing. Um, yeah. Quite and a bit. It's kind of long and rambling, but that's, yeah, spark notes. And what is your profession then? 
Are you a profession? Are you a professional sailboat uh, skip as uh, instructor? You're not. I know that, but just tell us no. a little bit about yourself. That way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I've kind of had one foot in the sailing fire here um, for a while, um, and the other foot's been firmly in the architectural design uh, industry. I got my master's degree. Um, in Chicago, I got my undergrad in architecture as well. That was um, downstate Illinois, so there wasn't a ton of sailing to be had there. Um, during grad school, I was a Opti travel coach for Columbia Yacht Club, so I was traveling around with the Opti team to make on the weekends when I wasn't in school and I wasn't working my internship um, to make a little extra money. And since graduate, I've worked in a couple different firms in Chicago, and I've actually recently taken a job out in Bozeman, Montana. So I'm out here um, working at a firm that does uh, residential projects. Oh, so you're out in the West now. That's great. Yeah, All right. I'm out in the West. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> it's not a lot of sailing. I guess there's a couple lakes up in Montana, but not much ocean sailing up there. So you, no. <laughs> you have, you have a pretty interesting story from what I gather of, uh, of how you sailed across the Atlantic. Let's get into that story. Uh, how did, how did this come about? And let's just delve into that uh, that part of your life then. Yeah. Um, so this was back in 2017. Um, I was between semesters in, it was the summer between my first year and second year of graduate school. Um, I was working at a really small firm and my boss was leading a study abroad trip in Germany. So he was out, out of the office and I got, um, something came through on Facebook from one of the other big boat players here in Chicago um, saying, can anyone be in the Canary Islands on Wednesday? And I saw this on a Saturday and I'm, I kind of had the time. I, um, I was a contract employee. So if I didn't work, I didn't get paid. And I was like, okay, I'll, I can be in the Canary Islands in five days. Um, so I followed up with this guy and he put me in touch um, with the boat owner who was bringing the boat. Um, he purchased the boat in Malta and had kind of been hopping around with another Chicago sale. So I keep, kind of keeping up with this, this trip. So they bought the boat in Malta, hopped up the coast of Italy to Barcelona through Gibraltar. And that's why I hopped on the satellite phone with him. And he said, yeah, if you, uh, sounds like you, you, if you can make it, you're welcome on the boat. So, um, got tickets, Dublin, met the boat in the Canary Islands. Did they pay for your travel, or did you have to pay for it out of pocket? Um, it was out of pocket. Okay. So you really wanted to do this trip, so you jumped through all the hoops then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what yeah, was the so – what, what, what was the um, – from Chicago to where to where? So I don't think there's any direct flights from Chicago to the Canary Islands, is there? There are not, no. So I flew to Dublin. I met another – member of the crew at the O'Hare International Terminal. Um, we met up. We were uh, hung out in the airport file. We flew to Dublin. We had like a nine-hour layover in Dublin, and then from Dublin down to Canary Islands. And I think the plane was mostly stag parties and people going on vacation, and then the two of us going to sail. Okay, and this was, again, refresh me on the uh, date that this was. This was in this was 2017. I think it was about May 22nd is when we took off um, for the Canaries. Okay. Okay. 
So what happened once you got, now? So this is not the normal crossing season we're talking about. May is is uh, an unusual time to be crossing from uh, from east to west. So it is. This is um this is going to be the theme of the story here. We did um we did a lot of stuff not the correct way or not the <laughs> not the best practice. So we we left the Canaries I think on the first day of hurricane season in um, in the Atlantic. So we. Uh, yeah, this is not the ideal time to be doing it, but again, the, the person who purchased the vessel wanted to get it back through, um, through the Caribbean, through Panama Canal, and then the boat was going to live off the coast. So he wanted it up on the West Coast for, I think, the, the winter racing series, you know, the Newport and Sonata and uh, those distance races down the coast. So it, we, we were just kind of trying to do it then and get it across the Atlantic before the hurricane season really picked up. Um, so yeah, I got over there. Um, we met guys at the little municipal Harbor on the kind of Northeast side of the Northeast side of the Island. Um, there's a big freighter port, um, North and we were in the little, um, pleasure boat Harbor, uh, really a nice Harbor there. You've got uh, a lot of nice little restaurants and bars, uh, that line it, um, floating docks and all sorts of boats. Um, you had some live aboard, some people who were cruising, some families, and then there was our um, our boat, which was a, a race race boat that had done pretty well in some of the Med Rolex um, uh, mid sea races. Yeah, I'm zooming in on Google Earth in uh, the Canary Islands. This is on Grand Canaria. Um, almost, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's two main harbors. There is, oh, I guess there's a few of them on that. But yeah, I see that big harbor in the northeast corner there. Yeah, pretty big harbor there. You're talking about. I guess the uh, is that the normal harbor for taking off? I think it's not. I think it's down south somewhere. But anyway, continue on with your story. You arrived there, and was the boat ready to go? Uh, the boat was not ready to go. So I I got the call to go when coming through Gibraltar. Um, and I think after I hung up, hung up the phone, they had a rough go of making through the Strait to Gibraltar. Um, so there was a fair amount of work that needed to be done on the boat. Let me pull up my notes here and I can <laughs> tell you our work list. Oh, yeah. So the, the head had broken. Um, so we had to replace the head. Um, some of the seacocks were stuck. So I uh, got to the boat and um, make sh- get those to open. Um, they actually ran into some fishing nets, so they had some fiberglass damage on the keel and the rudder. So we got some epoxy, and we epoxied that under the water, just mixed up a hot batch and applied that to the keel and sanded it down to the best we could just to kind of keep the core from getting any more waterlogged. So you did um, you did this under the water? I've never done any epoxying under the water. Is there a technique you have to do? Yeah. That? Okay, tell us about that. It was, um, it was just a, um, you just mix a little bit more of the cure agent into it. Um, and this, uh, wasn't my idea. It was, um, it, it sounds like, uh, something that they'd done before and it was, um, little syringe, uh, packet, uh, little syringe. You just dove down and sprayed it on. And we actually, uh, did about halfway across the Atlantic and it still held. So we were hmm. pretty happy with it. It was, it was, it was ugly and it caused a bunch of drag, but it, uh, was utilitarian and worked. <laughs> 
look for our means. Okay. Yeah, I'm zooming in on the uh, the harbor. I, I, there's a there's a travel lift there. Why don't you just pull it out and do it the correct way? Um, we were we were under the gun here. So other things that uh, the engine was burning a lot of oil um, and turned out our intercooler. Um, so what the stuffing box that exchanges um, engine coolant into uh, into seawater mm-hmm. and cools the whole Volvo system that had a crack in it. Um, and we were talking to the guys on the island about getting a new part, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, I should do that. You know, it'll be here in two weeks. Um, and that wasn't going to work work for us, so we just bought extra oil and kind of fed the diesel engine oil all the way across the Atlantic. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Cracked intercooler. Um, and so the boat had a big roundup, and that's where a lot of these issues kind of came from, um, going through the Straits of Gibraltar. So when they did that, they also took a wave through one of the windows and they fried the compressor to the refrigerator unit. Um, the water maker was shot and uh, the autopilot had working for a while. So uh, that's kind of where we were. And we were um, really all we did to outfit this boat. Um, dove it, uh, did some minor fiberglass work, and then we uh, rebuilt some of the winches, just took them apart, serviced all the paws, uh, greased them, put them back together. Um, so we had about two to three days of work um, on the boat, getting it ready, and that was about all we did um, to get the boat ready. Now, how long is the boat? You probably already mentioned that, but let's get a visual on how 41. big the boat. 41 feet? So yeah. Not that big a boat then. Okay, I was thinking a larger boat than that. Okay, but they didn't, I mean, to me, especially when you're trying to get up to the... Uh, to the west coast of America, I would be making pretty damn sure the engine was in top-notch condition, but that wasn't a priority then. Nope. We were, um, again, I think, I think the owner had some kind of grand plans of this romantic trip through the med. Um, and I think he just kind of got impatient with it. So he had his fun cruising through the med. This was kind of the tail end of the trip and he, he wanted to get back, uh, get back to life in the state. So we were, we were under, under the gun here for time okay and you didn't have really any you didn't know this person before this this happened so this is you're meeting this person for the first time when you're getting on the boat except for the conversation over the phone yep i had one satellite phone call with the guy um and and i signed up for it <laughs> okay. um again i i one of the boats i raced on in chicago is uh Benetow 40.7 and one of the guys who'd been helping do this delivery from Malta was on the boat and he'd been saying they were having a just a fantastic time um you know they stayed at the W in Barcelona there they had a nice little pool party when they got to Barcelona they took some time off so it was um, really kind of casual day sailing uh to get it to get it through here and then I think straight to Gibraltar got a little hairy and then um, the owner actually ended up cracking some ribs in that big wipeout that they took. Um, so I think he was just kind of done with it and didn't want to wait around in, in the Canary Islands for anything. So we were. Okay. So yeah, how, just under the gun. <laughs> so how many, so how many people are working on the boat at this time? How big is the crew? And uh, give us any background on the crew you want without actually naming names. So let's, yeah. uh, let's go down that. Um, we had we a super talented guy. Um, he had just, uh, got his 
yacht master certification. Um, so he was the captain. He was just looking, or not the captain. He was looking to gain hours. His um, his yacht master certain. He was just looking for hours to kind of build a portfolio to get into doing this full time. Mm-hmm. So he was on the boat. We had someone from the West Coast who knew this owner, and there'd been a couple other people who had changed out. You know, they were helping with five days here, seven days there. Um, so they brought the boat through Gibraltar with just six. It was the yacht master, the owner, a friend from the West Coast, and then my good buddy from Chicago, who I raced with, who kind of gave me the tap to come out and do it. Um, and then I was there with uh, the other Chicago guy who I flew out with. So that was a total of six on the boat. Okay, that seems like a pretty big crew for a, for a boat like that. I mean, sixty one or forty one feet is not that large for a crew of six, but I guess it's okay. But it seems larger yeah. than is necessary. But, yeah, the boat was fairly comfortable. Um, we had so V berth up front, and then we had uh, two settees that folded up into bunks. So we had three of us sleeping on bunks in the bottom starboard bunk was just a where all of our gear was. And then we had two quarter bursts in the back. Um, so it was surprisingly comfortable. Yeah. I always found on the crossings, the quarter bursts were the most comfortable bursts on a boat. That's where I always enjoyed sleeping. But uh, all yeah. right. So, uh, you, so you get the boat ready as best you can, not bothering with the engine, just going to nurse the engine through. Um, we're just going to feed it oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and the, and then you leave at the beginning of the hurricane season. Let's walk through yep. it from there. Then, um, yeah. So we started heading um, heading south a little bit. The plan was, I think, uh, to get into the trade wind. We had about 650 nautical miles to get offshore and really get into the solid wind. Um, and as we're, as we're leaving the boat owners talking about, you know, this is going to be a 12 day trip to Puerto Rico, which is roughly 3000 miles. <laughs> so we're supposed to maintain 10 four knots or, uh, 250 miles a day. <laughs> and it's, it's a, it's a good boat. It's got a great pedigree. We've got a full quiver of sails, you know, multiple asymmetric kites, um, bunch of jibs, storm sails, and from the racing I've done in the Great Lakes, I'm like, okay, you know, I've, maybe that seems right. This guy knows what he's talking about. He's done some transpacks. He's bought his own boat to do transpacks and do some other stuff on. So he, we can probably do this. I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't questioning it. Um, so we're pretty slow off the start. Um, you know, no real wind. We leave in the morning. So we run the engine for about six hours, um, trying to move out. Then we finally get sails up and, we're doing 5.5 knots um, those first two days is about our average speed, just trying to slog out to get to the trade winds and get into some better, more consistent breeze. Um, so the, again, the owner's impatient. We're trying to make time up. So when anyone's on the helm, he's downstairs uh, kind of keeping an eye on all the instruments, the nav station. And he's telling you, you know, keep the bow down, keep the bow down, keep the bow down. Uh, just trying to sail our appearance. Uh, we're trying to keep the wind like 150, mm-hmm. um, as low as we can go with these ASIMs on the boat. Um, 
So if you're deviating two degrees, he's, he's yelling up through the companion way, keep the bow down, keep the bow down. Um, and it's a little chaotic when we're, when we're starting, we didn't really have any, any shifts. It's, uh, the second night, the boat owner hops on the helm and he kind of heats it up. So he's just more or less reaching, reaching around the Atlantic, uh, north to south, um, seeing how fast the boat can go. And he does that for six hours and just kind of exhausts himself and then goes down and passes the helm off um, to us. And we're left to kind of remedy a situation and try to make out of that lost time. Uh, um, so after about two days of that, the crew crew really wears down and we realize, you know, we have to kind of settle into shifts here. So we start doing two hour shifts at night and then four hour shifts during the day. So you're on deck with um, one of your partners and then you've got the rest of the four crew downstairs sleeping. Um, and I guess one thing I should point out is, you know, there were six of us, but one of the guys uh, wasn't driving anymore. He was at the helm during this wipeout in the Straits to Gibraltar and he took a little bit of a verbal beat down from the, from the owner who cracked some ribs during that. So he wasn't driving at all. So we had six people on the boat, but only five people were taking turns at the helm. Now you weren't using an auto helm at all. You were just hand straying all the way across. Um, yes. Oh. So the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the boat, the boat had an auto helm and this came up. We can jump around a little bit here, but I think, Later, later on in the in the crossing, we we were talking about the auto helm, and we we didn't have much to do, and it was a really becalmed day, so we spent all day putting um, putting the back in place and getting that all working again. So the last two days, we had auto helm of uh, what ended up being an eight, eighteen day crossing. Oh, so you so the auto helm was there, but it was not working, or it wasn't hooked up for some reason. Yeah, the piston wasn't connected to the rudder post. Um, okay. So I don't think it was on the boat for any of the distance races that they were doing. And I think it just kind of came with the boat and it was put in the, uh, stern locker. Huh. So he's definitely not a, he's definitely not a cruising mindset. He's a total racing mindset then. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah. So, you know, we're, as we're, as we're going, you know, we're four days offshore and we're really trying to make up time. So we're sailing with our spinnaker up well into the evening just to try to keep time up. And, you know, we've got a, a sock rule system for it, mm-hmm. but still, I mean, we're up there monkeying with that at maybe midnight as uh, we, we could go by the moon pretty well, but as soon as the moon would fade away, we'd have to take our, take our spinnaker down. So yeah, no auto home. We're doing our our stands at the helm at night, uh, driving with the spinnaker up. Was uh, the was the wind consistent then during this period of time, or was it gusty at all? No, we were. It was pretty nice the whole time. You know, we had twenty knots, um, kind of out of the um, northeast, um, more east than north. But yeah, it was really really, really nice. Um, we had one day when we were a little becalmed and we just kind of got to rocking with a falling sea, but no, for the most part, we were in the trades and it was very, very comfortable. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that sounds like an ideal uh, wind speed to be coming across with, which, which, uh, which is 
known for the the crossing in December, but I I don't know how variable it is in hurricane season. But you were able to avoid the hurricanes. It sounds like you got below the hurricane belt. We did. Um, so we we were getting grid files sent to us every four or five days. So I think on day eight we got an update from someone. Um, who was doing all of our routing, they sent us some, some files and we downloaded them with our satellite phone, plugged them into Navionics. And it looked like there was a little bit of a tropical depression developing. And what that did is it just took our, it took our time from, I think we were 15 days uh, expected and then it pushed us to 18. So we were outside of Anguilla, maybe three days when we got that news and we we just added an extra two days on, so velocity really dropped then. Okay. Okay. So, so your hand steering all the way across, taking, taking shifts. Two two hours on at night is not bad. That's pretty good. So that's uh, you're you're getting yeah. decent sleep. So you got some decent sleep along the way. Uh, was the were the provisions good? Um, the provisions were not adequate so right when we got that note saying you know there's this tropical depression developing you're going to be out there for a little bit longer uh the yacht master and i we went down and we looked at we took stock of everything and when we were the boat was provisioned pretty heavily in barcelona so i was told so they bought all their non-perishables you know the rice the pasta ramen was all purchased in barcelona and then we did another stop to load up in the Canaries. Uh, I don't know if I said this or not, but our water maker was broken. So mm-hmm. we were using jugs of water. And when this showed up, you know, they rented a car, they went to the, uh, the local grocery and just loaded up with food and water and uh, everything we need. And it, it looked like a ton of food. So, you know, we're stashing it between under berths, under floorboard, everywhere we can fit the food. And, you know, we're feeling pretty good. And then day eight out there, we start going through it and, we realized, you know, we were going to have to start doing half rations of food. So we made a list of what was going to, we listed out every meal for the next um, 10 days, pretty much is what it ended up being. So we were doing, we were splitting a potato and cans of beans, baked beans. And that was our, that was our dinner. We were doing ramen for split a ramen packet between two guys. Uh, We were, conservative with how much water we were using, how much water drinking. Um, yeah. So the second half of it wasn't great. And again, we didn't have a refrigerator. So our fresh food ran out about three days short. We had some fruit, but we went through that pretty quick with six guys on a, on a 40 foot boat. We were, we were hurting. Were you trying to fish at all? Were you, were you throwing a line off the back to try to catch any fish at all? Or was that, would that cause too much drag? um we had we had fishing reels but we didn't have fishing rods or lures so we weren't (laughs) uh we weren't fishing we 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 spent that was one of our projects one day we tried rigging up um a spoon from the kitchen uh with some bent wire just to kind of keep ourselves busy and that was our improvised spoon for fishing but we, we were unsuccessful in that endeavor (laughs) <laughs> okay well all right you talked about um other issues on the trip the 
delve into what are the highlights? Yeah. Go ahead and delve into it. Take the story where you want to take it right now then. Okay. So, again, the owner had fallen and broken some. So he before he left, he was taking um, – he got a, a big bag of, um, I don't know, uh, pain pills, sleeping pills, and other pharmaceuticals, you know, just in case something happened, um, anti-inflammatories, all this stuff. So if we did get into trouble, you know, a little ways out, we could at least kind of cope with it. So he was, he was having a good time with his, uh, with his opioids and sleeping pills. So day two, he actually popped up. Um, I'm on the helm with someone else and he comes up shirtless just in his boxers and he looks around the cockpit, looks super dazed, super out of it. And he goes, where are we? So I, um, kind of look at the guys on deck with we read him the lat lawn and he's like no 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 where are we and we give him you know a little bit broader picture you know oh we're 200 miles off the coast right right now and he, that doesn't really seem to mean anything to him and uh, we finally say we're on your boat Atlantic and he's like oh okay and goes back down so that kind of persisted through through the delivery where the owner would be in and out of um, <laughs> consciousness more or less. So you just kind of knock himself out with sleeping pills and opioids for six to 12 hours at a time. And then he'd come up and be groggy. So we'd be covering, covering shifts and, you know, wasn't going to make a turn at the wheel. We divided up. So, you know, your two hour shift becomes a three hour shift. And then you let the other guy, um, the next shift covers, uh, the other half of his shift. So, um, yeah, again, we had six people on the boat because, you know, one guy couldn't drive and the owner starts getting a little squirrely with helm time. So it was really nice having four drivers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's really. <laughs> so the owner, was, uh, so the owner just, so the owner really didn't have any, I mean, he was just there for the ride. It sounds like then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he again it was a he worked hard he got this boat and he had fun with it so when he was on the helm you know there was no no room to call him out for his headings or anything he would um <laughs> you know <laughs> there's actually one specific instance uh, i've got it here in my notes he was day um oh god when was it yeah day nine so we're we're sailing along and there's 20 knots and you know, if you're going dead downwind, it's not super fast. And he just kind of keeps ticking it up, ticking it up. And I'm laying in my bunk during this whole thing. And I'm looking across at the nav station. You can see, um, see our speed flashing and he's, he's watching it and he's hollering up, up on deck, you know, calling it out, you know, 10 knots, high score, 10 and a half knots, high score, 11 and a half knots, high score. And then he, we start getting up into the, into the 12s and we're, we're really hot. We're kind of at a broad reach here, boats moving, boats humming. And then we just kind of, we out um, a spectacular brooch. Um, we just pirouette. Um, and I was in my bunk on the leeward side. So we're on a starboard tack. I'm on the port side. We round up. I was able to shut the, shut the window over the galley as we're rounding up and scurry up on deck. And we, um, we, he blows the bang, the boat kind of settles down, and we look up at the uh, the spinnaker, and we'd wrapped it. Um, we'd wrapped it around the forestay. And we're in 20 knots of 
wind with a following sea. So we get the end on and we start motoring and we're looking at it and we, uh, the yacht master was the youngest, uh, youngest and smallest guy on the boat. So we hoisted him up the rig and the thought was, you know, we'll just untie the, um, take the halyard off the head and unwrap it from the forestay and we'll be able to go because it's our, uh, we don't have a roller furler. So we need the track to hoist jibs and all that stuff. So he gets up there and he's up there for five minutes getting bucked around. I mean, it's a 55, 60 foot mast and, you know, we're rolling slightly at sea level. So he's, he's getting, uh, bounced around really tough. There. Um, yeah. Yeah. And after about five minutes, we, he realizes, you know, he's not going to be able to free it because what happened was the head went one way and the foot went uh, the other way. So mm. countering, uh, clockwise. So the thing really cinched itself on. So we ended up cutting the spinnaker all the way down the forest day to get it off. And we stowed it away. And, uh, you know, the owner went back to his cabin after that and we just kind of kept the main and kicked the engine on and settled for a little bit. So what was he doing? He was just trying to going for speed and probably going the total wrong direction. And this is what happened then. Yeah. Yep. We took our, our VMG went from, we made good went from, you know, just about a hundred, you know, 90, 98% VMG made good. And then, yeah, we uh, he was just kind of reaching around and going fast, and we wiped out. <laughs> Not a good place to play with that, I wouldn't think. So I wouldn't, you know, no. I'm surprised. I, I guess you can have spinnakers on a crossing, but it just seems counterintuitive for a conservative sailor not to throw up the spinnaker when so much can... I mean, spinnakers are fine, but I'm just not a big believer in spinnakers on, a, on an ocean crossing, you know, I Twin head sails, fine, but spinnacles don't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But again, I'm coming from a cruising mindset and not a racing mindset. Yeah, and this was this was the first crossing. I just I I really didn't know any better. I mean, we were getting fatigued, and we'd you know we take them down, we take the spinnaker down at midnight or two in the morning when we when we just couldn't see it anymore, or it was getting far too squirrely. We had a few few auto jibes in the middle of the night, and thank God we had a preventer on. Um, I woke up more than once to that nylon preventer just getting pulled tight as the boom came across and rounding up. And that was usually when we take the spinnaker down, um, was when we'd auto jibe. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, when I've, when I raced and we had spinnakers up, I mean, going dead downwind is just, you're just playing with, uh, with fire going dead downwind. And spinnakers don't really go that great dead downwind, like you say. You know, you got to be on a bit of a, a reach to get the speed out of a spinnaker and exactly yeah so yeah i can i've had many yeah. spinnakers wrap in my lifetime and it's never fun but i've never been able to undo it like that so yeah and that was um that was the first that was the first of two spinnakers that we lost on this trip doing the exact same thing so, so was, was it the owner, was, on a, was it the owner again on the second spinnaker too um, partially. So I was on the helm for the second spinnaker and the owner on deck and he said, Oh, you know, we're, we're three degrees high and I'm, you know, we've got our, every, every bit of information you could want is getting relayed into the cockpit. Um, and I'm like, we really can't go any lower. You know, we're 150 apparent, 150 apparent was as low as we could take these spinnakers or one, 150 true, whatever, whatever it was, we were as low as we could go with this asymmetric. And he starts easing, um, and easing, easing, and 
I'd start, I'm like, okay, we, and we go down and, um, we lose the spinnaker, um, out ahead of the boat and we try coming up and we try easing. Um, but it was too little too late on, um, on that one. And it, it did the exact same thing. It wrapped, um, pretty spectacularly, um, around the fourth day again. So that was luckily only two days out from, uh, Puerto Rico where the boat ended up landing. So you came up quite a ways. Usually the uh, the place everybody's shooting for is uh, uh, Antigua. But you guys skipped all those lower islands and went straight to Puerto Rico then, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got the track pulled up here. Let me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you went. You yeah. We, uh, so again, we go on. You, go ahead. I'm just looking at the uh, Google Earth as well. Yeah, so we cruised right through um, Anguilla. That was that was nice. We're looking at it. Uh, we could see the lights on the horizon, and that we we wrapped the spinnaker just off like a day outside of Anguilla the second time. And as we're um, coming through, we're talking. You know, maybe we stop. We get some more water. We get some food. And the boat owner said, "If we stop, you guys are never getting back on this boat. So we're not stopping." <laughs> is is that true? Were you going to abandon yeah. him as soon as you got to shore? Well, we weren't going to abandon him. Um, my, my plane ticket was out of Puerto Rico, so I had to make it to Puerto Rico. That was kind of my dog in the fight. Um, but, yeah, he, he didn't think we'd get back on the boat with him, so we, we weren't stopping at, at any island for food or anything. We were making it all the way through to Puerto Rico. Um, well, now, what's, yeah. the, what's, the, what's the relationship of the crew? Were you at each other's throats? Were you angry with each other? Were you working well together? I mean interpersonal relationships on a small boat are all important. How was that working out? They are. And I think we kind of, five of us came together and we realized, you know, we've got to get through this. Um, There's no point. um, There there are some other things that happened. Like um, the boat owner was getting upset with how, how heavy the stern was getting. We had a bunch of Jerry cans of fuel in there. So we woke up um, to him lashing Jerry cans inside the, um, inside the cabin through the stove to get more weight low and close to the keel. So the whole, we wake up and the whole cabin smells like diesel. Mm. And we're like, no, no, you can't, you, we're not going to have jerry cans um, over the stove. Uh, so there was just like a lot of things like that that were really wearing on the crew. And we all kind of came together and coalesced around, you know, our safety. And we all started looking out for each other, um, which was really nice. Uh, it was nice kind of having that camaraderie. Uh, it would have been nice if it happened in another way, but it was still nice to have with the five of us. But all of you were strangers to each other, except I mean, you were strangers to everybody on the boat, correct? There was no one of my friends uh, from Chicago was on the boat. Okay, so um, did you develop a strong? But then rela- everyone, yeah. So did you develop a strong relationship yeah. with other people on the boat, and they're they're friends to this day? Yeah, um, I still keep in touch with. Um, so this guy who I flew over with, um, one of the two other Chicago guys on the boat, him and I, um, are still close. Um, the guy who, who said, you know, come on, this, this has been a great cruise. Him and I are still friends. Um, I keep up with the yacht master and the other guy from the West coast. And yeah, I, I, we had so much time just to sit and talk with one another on deck and we really got to know, uh, know everyone's story. Uh, there wasn't, wasn't much to do except talk and very, again, looking back on this, I, you know, three years removed, I've got nothing but the fondest memories for it. And I would love to do a lot more ocean sailing, but better provisioned. 
maybe knowing the <laughs> knowing the owner. Well, the most uncomfortable before. experiences turn into your best memories. That's always the case. You know, the good times are easy. Yeah. You just forget the good times, but the bad times you never forget, and they become uh, they become nostalgic in time. I know that's always the case with people. So that's, yeah. that's great. That's great. Um, all right. Do you do you follow the owner at all in the boat? What's what's happened to the owner in the boat since then? Um, so the boat last I saw was for sale. It made it it made it to the West Coast and promptly put for sale. Oh um, really? So he didn't even do the West Coast races. He just sold it when he got there. He sold it. So the boat was purchased um, through an LLC with him and some of his racing buddies, and he was majority uh, shareholder. And I think his other other partners had smaller stakes in whatever LLC bought the boat. And something that came up is they weren't the other stakeholders in the boat didn't want to do the delivery, which, you know, you find that out two days offshore and you're like, oh, that kind of sets off some alarm bells that people who own this boat aren't on it or don't want anything to do with the guy who is on it. So, yeah, I'm not going to speculate as to why the boat got sold, but I, I know it sold literally okay. for sale on the West Coast. Okay. So they bought the boat, ran it over there, didn't spend any time in the Mediterranean, I mean a minimal amount of time in the Mediterranean, and uh, and then sold it. Interesting. Yeah. There was, um, I think there was a surf trip in Panama. It went through the canal and then went up to Ensenada and sat there for a little while. Um, but I think that was, I think purchase of the boat to it being in Ensenada was left year. Okay. Let, let's talk about the uh, clearing customs in San Juan, Puerto Rico, because uh, I've heard some people have t- heard, told horror stories about clearing customs. Were you all Americans on the boat, or were there foreigners on the boat? Um, <laughs> it was a mixed bag. So okay. the yacht master was British. The guy, one of the guys I raced with in Chicago, um, has a German passport. So he was going through and stamped out of everywhere with his German passport. But since he was entering America, I think he had to show his American passport there. Um, the second Chicago guy was an American and the other West coast guy was a Canadian. Yeah. So was it, was it straightforward clearing customs? Because when I interviewed Dan Culpepper, when he sailed back to the States, he had a couple foreigners on, on his boat and they gave him hell. He had to end up paying a, a huge fine for bringing him into the country without some sort of a documentation ahead of time. Was it, what, did you deal with that or was that not an issue for you? No, none at all. Okay. Um, so we entered at Marina, uh, um, Marina or Porto del Rey Marina on, um, if you can see it on the tracker there, it's on the east side of the Island. And then we went up, North, uh, there's a little town, Beltron, about okay. 20 miles north. Um, there's a little little ferry dock and some other smaller marinas right there. Okay. Um, and we into a little little U.S. custom. Um, so we were only in Puerto Rico for 12 hours. Got there at 2 in the morning, packed the boat. Uh, took all the sails down. We were at the customs house at nine. They stamped all of our passports and uh, went back to the boat or duffels and went right to the airport. So there was no trouble. They, they didn't come on the boat. Um, 
so I don't know if I should be saying that, but yeah, they didn't check out the boat. We left it in the marina, uh, showed up at the customs house, they stamped us in, and we went about our way. Well, that's the way it should be, but I've heard horror stories from other people, and that's, that's great that you didn't have that issue. So yeah. that's, that's good. Now, did you, did you already have a uh, flight out on a specific date, or did you, were you just sort of going and buying your flight when you got there? Um, we were having our uh, one of the Chicago guys, his wife was a travel agent, and uh, she was just kind of handling all of our um, all of our stuff. So as we kept getting delayed, she was um, pushing our pushing our flights back. Um, I think we were on Southwest, and they were super helpful um, with changing it. Yeah, Southwest is easy. The other ones are uh, very difficult, so that's good. Okay. So flying back. All right. Is there anything else we should cover? Or have you hit the highlights? Are there any specific stories that we need to talk about before um, we finish up? What What do we need to know? Um, I, I think that's um, that's a lot of it. You know, running out of food, blowing up a couple spinnakers, um, weak engine. <laughs> uh, kind of a one of the funnier things. Two funny things happened. I was. Um, just at the helm one night and it was a beautiful night, a little bit of a moon. You had some phosphorescence in the water and, and all of a sudden I feel something smack the back of my leg. You know, every irrational story about sea monsters and run through my head and I just, I scream, I wake up the whole crew. I'm jumping up and down in the back of the boat thinking like a, something grabbed me. Um, you know, I was zoning out watching the, watching the compass heading and suddenly something smacked into the back of my calf and I'd been hit by a flying fish. So I wake the whole crew up screaming in the back of the boat, and it's nothing but a you know four-inch flying fish that grazed the back of my calf. Everyone had a good laugh about that one. Um, yeah, we also had a so when when our ration started, this is the last last kind of anecdote about the trip. We had a bag of pistachios, big like two-pound bag of pistachios, and um, one night, one morning, we wake up and we go up to the bow of the boat to. Uh, switch out head sails. You know, we'd taken the spinnaker down. We had a jib up, so we were just doing that. And our we're barefoot, and our feet are really getting cut up. When we look, we're stepping on a bunch of pistachio shells. So the owner had taken <laughs> the rest of our bag of pistachio shells up to the front of the boat and had opened his hatch and was throwing pistachio shells out his hatch all over the foredeck. Um, so there's just littered, littered with pistachio shells. So we go and look for the bag, and it's just it's been decimated, but whatever, whatever remained of the pistachios were gone. Um, so yeah, flying fish, pistachio shells. Yeah. Those are kind of a funnier moment. Now, when you're, I'm looking at the, the questions you, you said to, that I might want to touch base with you on. Oh yeah. Uh, what about your, you said you had a sat phone. Were you in regular communication with the sat phone? How did it work? What was, uh, Oh yeah. We had, um, a used Iridium go, phone and we just were loading it up with minutes and our navigator was responsible for minutes we um you know we're making calls to the mainland um you know checking in with our family and downloading files uh we would just put more on it it was uh, really seamless you know we were we had a remote antenna we'd kind of hold above our head when we wanted to download bigger files and get emails but yeah it worked out super well i was really surprised by just how well that worked and how seamlessly um that all worked and we were able to stay in contact. And again, we got, uh, we got notified when the, um, when that low pressure system was developing and, you know, we had to change course a little bit, but it was great. 
Okay. I was really okay. So you're able to get grid files and everything else through the Iridium then? Yes. That's great. Okay. Um, let's see. All right. I think we've covered all your questions. Anything else come to mind? No. Okay. Um, no, again, this wasn't, this wasn't the, I don't think this is how the Atlantic crossing should be done. It was my, <laughs> it was an easy way for me to do it. And it, you know, um, I've talked to people who have done great things and just had the opportunity to do it. So I figured this was my opportunity to do something super fun. Um, and I'm again, super, super grateful. I did it. I think there are a lot of things I'd change about how it was done, but again, fantastic crossing. So when the boat got to Puerto Rico, you guys jump off the boat and, and get out of Dodge. And uh... <laughs> our bags were packed. We passing. We had like one shirt on top and that was it. We, we showered and went to the airport and we were done. <laughs> did you hear uh, if they did any more work? Did they work on the, did you hear anything about the boat after you left or were you done and you didn't want to hear about it then? Um, we, with someone who was taking care of the boat and we just kind of pawned everything off to them. This was an old West coast friend who lived on Puerto Rico and he was going to keep an eye on the boat and we just kind of left the boat with him. Okay. Um, so, so the, so, so the owner left as well then. So everybody off left the boat, the owner and everybody left the boat then. Everybody left. Okay. You had enough <laughs> then. <laughs> We tied it up and we were gone. Um, you know, one thing I, I can't speak highly enough of, of uh, the Puerto del Rey Marina, I have a wonderful convenience store. We pillaged at about um, six in the morning, right when they opened. We were at, there at the door. You know, we didn't have anything cold. We hadn't, uh, we, we ate our last ramen package that was split between a couple of guys the previous day. So we pillaged their little commissary um, there. Um, we looked like, I don't know, kids on a road trip, just loading our arms up with bags of chips and candy and chocolate milk, and it was wonderful. <laughs> All right. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate yeah. you sharing your story with us. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Where we're going, we don't need roads. 